All right. I want to talk about why I think Christopher Alexander is one of the most under the radar, underappreciated thinkers that I have ever encountered, especially if you have an interest in human liberty, uh, free society, a prosperous society, a well-functioning society, and a free a free life on the individual level. Like if you want to live as free as possible, this guy is so brilliant. In fact, I don't think I have ever encountered another thinker who so impacted my thinking, gave me a completely new set of tools, uh, lenses through which to view and understand the world so quickly as Alexander. I would say C.S. Lewis and um, Ludwig von Mises are up there. But what's interesting about Alexander, in the case of Lewis and, and Mises, for me, I encountered them and it was like, whoa, this is cool. This is kind of new. This is, this is putting something into words that I've, that I've had a hunch about, that I've wondered about. And it kind of came little by little. And then I read, I think I've literally read almost everything uh, either of them have ever written and some of the things multiple times. And I own most of them and went very, very deep into those guys over a really long time. With Alexander, it was very different. I was introduced to him and... I got like two chapters into the first book of his I ever read and was like, oh my gosh, like the full, the full weight of the power, the explanatory power of his ideas, like hit me so, so quickly. Um, and, and I gotta be honest, I haven't even, I don't even know if I finished that first book of his. I think I've started um, three or four books of his. I maybe have finished one of them. I know it's, it's like, it's crazy. But so I'm not here to give you like a full, uh, explanation of his, you know, of his ideas or a biography or anything, but I, I want to kind of whet your appetite and help intrigue you. Cause I think this guy holds so much, his understanding of the world holds so much promise for making sense out of a lot of things, uh, today. And, um, well more than today, timelessly, uh, which is great because one of his books is called a timeless way of building. So who was Christopher Alexander? Um, I'm sure I'll get some of the details wrong because I'm I'm just winging this. I'm just making this up. I mean, I'm just sharing this off the top of my head. I'm not scripting it. I haven't gone and researched and I haven't read his stuff for actually several years. I just decided to make this video now because uh, I've thought about it for a long time. But he was an architect, uh, at least he began as an architect. And from my understanding, he went about, and I think most of his work was during the 60s and 70s, probably. I, I believe he's been dead now for, for some time. But um, uh, he he began as an architect and he had this intuition, uh, you know, this, this thing that all of us have until it gets sort of schooled out of us or intellectualized out of us, that when you look at a built object, a building that a humans designed or a garden or any human created object, that you can tell when one is better than another and when one is good and one isn't good. And even children can tell this. I mean, you, you tell them to look at different Lego constructions and they can tell you which one's better. And the idea that this was purely subjective, that it's just random opinion, it didn't sit right with Alexander. And he did all of these sort of field research projects where he would show people pictures, side-by-side -side pictures of like, let's say a window, one window and then another window. One might be in some old European village and one might be in some modern brutalist uh, government building or whatever. And he would ask people, he was trying to figure out what it is that makes a built environment seem better than another one. Like, what is the metric against we're judging? We're all like appealing to something that we all kind of intuitively know, but what is it? And his, 
what he came up with for it was essentially this concept of of life or being in line with or consistent with the patterns of life, the patterns that emerge of aliveness, that things can have varying degrees of aliveness. And aliveness is kind of like the thing's capacity or, or ability to be in harmony with the, nat- with the patterns that exist in nature and in human nature. And, and that this was something objective. This was not just opinion that there are actually objective realities to nature and to human nature and human preferences and, and, and the patterns of our behavior, the way that we live and, and pursue sort of life. Um, there are objective patterns there and, and structures, built environments can be more or less in line with those. They can be completely in conflict with them, which makes us feel a sort of way, pretty horrible, or they can be very harmonious with them, which makes us feel almost divine and transcendent. It almost, it, it almost elevates us. I mean, the, the experience, I mean, I know some of you have seen those like, um, like bibliophile pornography, uh, tweets of like, look at this library, you know, some like incredible library with the ladders and the spiral staircases and the light. And like, this is a built environment, but there's something about it or a, or a beautiful garden or some of this like traditionalism revival stuff that will show like these beautiful. And there's a reason Alexander contends that those things have that effect on us. It's not just like, oh, you know, we all have different tastes. My favorite color is red and yours is blue. It's just subjective. So his argument, he said, he said when he would show people these, these pictures and say, I want you to tell me which one of these two windows is more alive and which one is less alive. And he said, this is the easiest task in the world. Every single person he showed, they all come to the same conclusion. He could show them two different homes. He could show them two different pictures of a a gate uh, leading out into a field or something like that. Any built environment or structure, everybody agrees on which one is more alive than the other. And like so many things in life, we know things that we don't know that we know. Like we have a, as Hayek or Michael Poliani might say, like a tacit understanding. We have tacit knowledge that's inside of us uh, that we don't, we don't even know that we have, right? Let alone the ability to um, explain it or codify it or define it or share it with others. And, and Alexander was trying to tease that out. What is it that we naturally know about architecture that is making this extreme consistency when I ask people which of these is more alive? Um, this idea of tacit knowledge, by the way, one of my favorite examples um, comes from F.A. Hayek, who did a lot of fascinating work in you know, the use of knowledge in society and, and other sort of Studies of why um, free markets, where property rights and prices can emerge, um, help us tease out this knowledge, and uh, which is incredibly valuable. That there was, there was some guy in Canada, how the story goes, um, where they're like, he he saw a class of, he was like a bagpiper. He, whatever he did for a job was totally unrelated, but he played the bagpipes and he made these tiny little metal parts for his bagpipe, just like his hobby bagpipe. Um, and he saw some ad in the classifieds from a, an airplane manufacturing company saying they were seeking some kind of metallurgist or something. And he was not a metallurgist to make some small fabricated part for like the air vents in their new, you know, Boeing 740s, whatever it was. And he read the description and was like, that's kind of similar to what I'm doing with these bagpipes. Anyway, long story short, he ended up starting a business, manufacturing these, getting very wealthy, et cetera. Until he saw that ad, he didn't know that he had any skills in the aerospace industry. 
And nobody could have gathered that on a census, right? No one could, this is why central planning fails is, is Hayek's contention and I agree with him because it's correct. Um, you can't run a consensus and be like, okay, what is all the human capital available to us in this province of Canada and how can we best deploy it? Oh, why is this guy, you know, this guy is a meddler. You wouldn't know that because he didn't know that, right? And so anyway, there's all these truths that we sort of know that we embody, um, truths about ourselves and about the structure of the world and reality that we don't know that we know and that are often not known to us. So Alexander wanted to understand this as it relates to architecture. And so he kind of began this lifelong journey to boil down what are the elements that make something more or less alive. And he came up with what he called a pattern, a pattern language. So he has um, the books of his that I own and that I know of are um, Notes on the Synthesis of Form, which is a pretty thin one. And you can, I think you can get that on Amazon pretty easily. Most of his are out of print, kind of hard to get. Um, a Timeless Way of Building, which is excellent. I think that's the one I read cover to cover. Um, a Pattern Language. And then he's got this like five volume set of these huge fat books. Um, and I can't remember the names of all of them, um, but it's, it's incredible. I mean, pick up any of his, any of his works. It's really incredible. So, so he basically contends that humans are wired a certain way and the natural environment is structured a certain way. Reality is structured a certain way. It has an objective structure to it. And there are patterns that are built into it. And if you contradict those patterns or don't flow with them, uh, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> and as he began to uncover these for architecture, he essentially, he essentially could not stop seeing the world this way and broadened it out much, much beyond that to a philosophy uh, of life itself, of, um, you know, sort of a political philosophy, the way governance structures are. Uh, that run counter to these principles, um, you know, sort of personal life philosophy, like, and, and I, and the way I first heard about Alexander, I was doing fundraising for a, a libertarian nonprofit. And I flew out to Minnesota, Minneapolis, and I met this couple and they weren't very old, but they had made a lot of money that the, the, the husband had sold a software company and they had moved out an hour or two away from the city to a rural area. And he said, have you ever heard of Christopher Alexander? Cause we were talking about F.A. Hayek and all this stuff. And I said, no. And he gave me the lowdown on him. And they ended up sending me one of his books, which is when I first started reading. But he said his pattern language that he sort of uncovered um, is what helped me build my software company, that I built my software explicitly on these principles of trying to flow with natural human patterns rather than contradict them. And that's how this guy contended. That's how I made so many millions of dollars and sold it and, um, you know, moved to the country and all this stuff. So the more I got into Alexander, it it helped me understand and pull together so many other pieces. Like I already understood sort of the spontaneous order, the invisible hand of the marketplace and why, you know, central planning fails because it runs contrary to kind of the way that humans are, et cetera. And I understood various things, but it, it helped me form my philosophy of education tremendously because I had grown up homeschooled and very laissez-faire in my education, but I didn't know why certain things really rubbed me the wrong way and other things really appealed to me and really worked in terms of my education. I didn't, I, like I sort of had guesses and, and random grab bag one-off theories for specific instances, but I didn't have like an undergirding understanding. And he helped me see how learning happens, how the natural pattern of human learning is and how if you if you try to counter that, which is exactly what institutionalized schooling does, what public schooling in particular does, it's it's completely 
anti-life, um, which is which is a Randian phrase from Ayn Rand. But it's it's incredible how much Christopher Alexander's conclusions um, reflect so much of Ayn Rand. Um, but if you contradict these patterns, these sort of patterns of, of living creatures, of humans in, in the natural world, you will have a very uh, soul deadening experience. Um, and in, in education, I saw that. And I saw that in, in the world of healthcare, right? That like the holistic nature of all these systems that flow into each other, um, if you are doing something that runs counter to the natural desires and tendencies of these patterns, you're going to screw stuff up in a bad way. Um, so I'll give you a concrete example. So Alexander talks about, you know, like plants, for example, are, um, they seek light, right? And there's some name for that, phototropic or something like that. Um, and so like, you know, if you make a garden uh, in a certain way where you have a, a wall that's shading them from the light, and you view the, the plants from one side and the light comes from the other side, but the light is shaded, like they're going to all seek to face away from where you're viewing them. And that's going to give you a very weird experience. You're going to be trying to look at all these beautiful flowers and stuff, but they're all going to be trying to sort of look towards the light and reach over this wall, like away from you, right? Um, and so just understanding those patterns and humans are also phototropic. So when you design a room, humans are naturally drawn towards the light. Humans also, if they're going to be in a room for more than a few minutes, they want to sit because standing feels like you're in the ready, you're not relaxed. So if you want a room where people converse and relax, you want seating. So these two patterns, the desire to sit if you're going to be there longer than a few minutes and not have this be a pass-through, a walk-through room, and, and to be able to be relaxed, and the desire to move towards light means that if you arrange a room where the chairs are sort of oriented around a window, it's going to naturally draw, it'll flow with your natural patterns. And these are subconscious patterns. Very few of us are conscious of them. You don't walk into a room and be like, I don't like this room because I want to be near the light, right? Most of us are not aware of that. Um, and this is what Alexander sort of made explicit, these implicit things. Um, if you have a room that conflicts with that, it's got all these chairs over here and then this huge empty space and then a window over here, like some of us have been in houses like that, uh, you feel tension. You're like, your natural tendencies are being thwarted. It's like putting a dam in a flow of water and it's all, it's kind of chaotic and crazy. And it's like, you, you have, you're not in harmony with kind of what you naturally want to be doing. Um, and you think about that in, in like the realm of health, for example. So I'm sitting here looking at my computer monitor right now. And uh, which by the way, people put their webcams right above their monitors because when you're looking, you tend to look at yourself. And if your camera is over here, but your monitor is here, you're gonna look at yourself and the camera is gonna look at the side of your head, right? You orient these things in ways that, are, that work with your natural patterns. But I have my monitor here and behind my monitor and behind my desk is a window because I'm drawn to light. And like, I don't look out the window. In fact, I have the curtains drawn most of the time. So only some light comes through. So I'm not like overwhelmed. But the fact that I'm drawn to that naturally, I have been in offices where there's a blank wall behind my desk. And then to the left, let's say, is a window. And what do I find myself doing all day, especially when I'm thinking or I'm on a phone call? I'm not looking at my monitor writing and I'm like, hmm, I'm looking towards the window. I'm staring out towards the light as I sit there and think. And what happens if I do that all day, every day in the same place? 
my neck is always to one side all the time. And now my spine gets out of alignment and that affects my nervous system. Maybe I get a pinched nerve or something in my muscular system. And that's going to affect other systems in my body. And I'm going to have problems that cascade out of that, that one little way that I'm living that is, you could call it anti-life, right? Because the natural pattern that life seeks is, again, looking towards the light. Um, that is going to have this cascading effect that's going to influence all kinds of parts. I might, my neck could get out of whack and that could make my jaw slightly out of whack. And while I'm sleeping, I could start to grind my teeth and that could cause me to need to, like, it's crazy the way this stuff happens, but I've, I've, with my own health, I've gone through enough things to sort of start to understand. And that's the whole idea of holistic health, right? It's not just about like, you know, some hippie shit where you like rub a stone and say a prayer to the moon or something. The idea is just understanding the body as a system, the way that Christopher Alexander tried to say architecture is plugged into this much broader system of the full built environment and things. Um, so, and I've mentioned several times that this overlaps with Rand, right? Rand being an objectivist believed that there was um, an objective reality, uh, physical reality, uh, objective, the, the nature of reality, there were rules and, and things in the patterns of reality that were objective, that were not just subjective, that we just, you know, believe whatever we want to believe. And she believed there was an objective morality as well. And that basically the impulse to seek life the individual to seek his or her own life and thriving is baked into the universe as kind of a moral imperative. And anything that is contrary to that, what she might call altruism or, um, you know, self-flagellation or whatever, and you can disagree with her terms and things, um, but I think she largely got it right, um, is anti-life. And Alexander's getting at a very similar thing from a very different angle, coming at it from, and it's funny because their, their audiences, their fans are so different um, that most of them probably doesn't know the other one exists, or, or at least Randians probably don't know that Christopher Alexander exists. And people who like Alexander probably think of Rand as most people do as some horrible, selfish, stone cold, whatever. Um, but they came to an understanding of the way reality works that's uh, basically the same. And, and frankly, is, is I, I grew up in a Christian household. like in sort of a very broad sense, the, the Christian mythos, the Christian belief system is essentially the same thing, that there are, that there is this ultimate objective reality uh, called God that is, that is an unchangeable sort of backstop. And there are patterns to that. And if you are in, if you live in contrast with the patterns of the universe as they flow out of God, um, you are going to suffer right? You are, you are sinning. You are missing the mark. You are living out of alignment with the patterns. You are living in a way that is anti-life and that you will suffer the consequences of that. Now, you know, you don't need to, whether you, you put a beard on it and say it's a, give it a human idea, whatever. Like, I don't, I don't think that's actually how, you know, Christian theology works, but the way people have popularized it, that's where it can get silly. And people can think that it's totally in contradiction to something like Rand's beliefs. But I actually think the, the core idea is the same here. And it's also very much in line with Thomas Sowell, who was a student of F.A. Hayek and, and sort of built on his work and applied it. Thomas Sowell has a phenomenal book called A Conflict of Visions. Um, and he talks about two visions of the world, a constrained vision and an unconstrained vision. And an unconstrained vision is essentially, um, and by the way, this, this cuts left and right. It's not a left and right thing. It, it cuts across those because somebody like Thomas Jefferson, for example, 
um, you know, and it cuts across sort of libertarian authoritarian as well. Because someone like Thomas Jefferson, for example, who'd be considered a classical liberal or libertarian somewhat, Sowell would argue had an unconstrained vision, as did the French revolutionaries, as did communist revolutionaries. Um, someone like Edmund Burke, who is sort of a conservative with some libertarian tendencies, or Lord Acton, um, would have a constrained vision. Um, but it cuts across uh, sort of the typical left-right spectrum. But the idea is that a constrained vision accepts that there are certain things about reality that just are, that can't be changed. Our understanding of them can be imperfect and we can improve it and our understanding can change. And the way that we work with those realities can change, but the realities themselves are fixed. Scarcity. You're not going to ever have a post-scarcity world. It's honestly like an incomprehensible idea, right? Someone with a constrained vision understands that. Uh, Self-interest or what some might call greed. You can't ever get to a place where that doesn't exist. Again, it would be anti-life if it did. If you were not attempting to preserve and improve your situation, you are trying to destroy it, which is anti-life, which is like Rand, and I think I would agree with her, would say is fundamentally immoral. If, if, if nothing else, it's misguided and it's, self, it's self-defeating. Um, but like this, these are parts of reality. Humans are imperfect. They have imperfect knowledge and information. And so any system that you attempt to construct that requires them to be perfect, uh, humans are not always morally good. They, they do immoral things, right? A constrained vision would say, you have to accept those. Those will never change. And you have to live a life and, and attempt to create institutions that accept those and work with them to the best of their ability and channel greed and, and immorality and self-interested impulses and lack of perfect knowledge create an institution, an institutional setting where the, the incentives are such that people are, when they pursue things in a, in a way that's greedy or even immoral, the outcome is going to be beneficial or at least not horrible for everyone else, right? Where an unconstrained vision would say, we can create institutions and beliefs and norms that actually perfect humans, right? The Marxian idea of a new man. Well, right now we got all these messed up systems because people are messed up. But once people are perfected, right? Once people are no longer immoral, if they would just be selfless and we, and we can get there, right? We can overcome scarcity, a post-scarcity world. Sometimes the techno utopians talk about that, which is just bullshit. You can't scarcity, as long as there's choice, there's scarcity uh, because there's opportunity cost. Anyway. And so I would say Alexander is very much of a, of a constrained vision. He's saying there are things that just are in the way the world is built. And we attempt, we ignore them at our own demise. And we certainly attempt to, and this is like the Randian villain, right? The one who understands this, but says, screw it. I'm going to contradict them anyway, right? Like I'm not just pretending that there are no patterns and that there is no uh, sort of objective truth or, or um, there is no idea of things having more or less life in them, aliveness and being in, in alignment with, with sort of the truth and human nature. Some people just don't realize it, but the people who say, I do realize it, and I'm going to live and attempt to force others to live in stark contradiction to it anyway, like this rebellion against reality. Um, that's like a Randian villain, right? And, and it seems so unrealistic, at least it used to in her stories, but you see it. And it's so interesting that she chose architecture in the fountainhead um, as a way to express this, um, because that, again, that's right up in Alexander's alley. And, and the idea of like brutalist art architecture is the imperfect embodiment of this, of like, Maybe not all the people involved in it, they're just trying to think pragmatically or whatever, but they are unconstrained. They're thinking we can, we can change human nature 
by putting humans in these particular types of cells that have no adornments or ornamentation that are purely utilitarian that drive them to function in a certain way. And you can't, you try to interrupt their natural patterns. What you'll do is kill them. You'll kill their soul and spirit and sometimes their body um, because it's anti-life. You won't change them. You won't suddenly make someone not seek light as a human uh, because you're biologically wired this way. Like you literally need it. You need the vitamin D. Your eyeballs need to take in certain amount of, of ultraviolet. You, we don't know this on a often, at least not as children, in, on an uh, intellectual level, but intuitively, like we seek these things and you can't just be like, I'm going to build a building with no windows and everyone will change and no longer want light, right? It's, you, you'll, you'll kill them. You'll kill the, you'll at least kill what makes them human and, and beautiful and wonderful or, or what a religious person would say that the divine in them. Um, so, uh, where was I? I'm all over the place here. Um, um, architecture. Oh yeah. The, the idea that the villain, it's just sort of the person that contradicts it, the brutalist architecture, like we're going to, or, or like some forms of modern art, I'm going to make something that hurts you to look at. That is explicitly ugly. You know, like you've heard some of these extreme stories. I'm going to like take a shit in a jar and like hang it on a wall and charge me. And it's some, it's some commentary on art and perception and whatever. You give it some intellectualization, but what it really is, is saying, I recognize these patterns and I want to contradict them anyway. There's some sort of weird self-hatred in there. I would argue that the environmental movement has a lot of that um, mixed into it. Uh, it's a lot of kind of self-hatred, right? Because what Alexander is really talking about, what is a built environment? A built environment is the border of chaos and order, right? A built environment is the transition, the liminal space between the wild and the human and controlled. And especially the idea of a garden, right? Where And Alexander talks a lot about transition spaces where if you walk out a door, for example, and I had a house like this, it was a beautiful house. It was on a pond and it had a nice back patio and it was but it had this weird feature that never made you want to go on the back patio, even though it was beautiful and overlooked the pond. The patio was in full sun all day and it had no overhang or anything. It was just the back of the house with a door and then this patio and then the lawn. That's it. So you walk out and it was just flat as far as the eye could see. There was no fence or gate. There was no overhang. You had no liminal space, no transition from the cave, the completely human controlled, safe you know, environment, ordered environment to the chaos of nature, you just open the door and like, boom, you're there. And whether it's uh, an evolutionary thing because people evolved on the savannah and they needed a way to not immediately be exposed to predators when they walked up, whatever, you can, there's all different people's theories on these things. But the fact is there's a pattern at play here that humans don't feel comfortable and safe with an immediate transition from, you know, interior to exterior, from sheltered to exposed. So a, a life-giving space like that is what the concept of a garden, which is no wonder this is in the, the creation story in, in you know, Christianity and pretty much in, in most um, cultures. And that the gods sort of lived in gardens when humans interacted with them, it was in these garden spaces where it's, it's this transition space um, where you come in and like, there's a hedge maybe that you can see over it's not completely walled in like a prison yard. You can see over, but it provides a little bit of protection. And maybe there's a roof or sometimes even a partial roof, right? Like you go out into some patios and they just have like 
the beams with no roof over it. So you get some sun and maybe there's some vines over it, but they're manicured, but you get a little protection and it opens out, right? Frank Lloyd Wright was very big on this sort of opening out. So that like when you look, your view is expanding as you look farther versus like looking down into a tunnel, for example, or like, you know, you go out into an area and it's all closed in except for one little portal, right? Like you don't want that. You want it to gradually expand outward as you move further into the space. That's in line with these natural patterns. And Christopher Alexander goes into all kinds of depth about this and gives tons and tons of examples. But so I think that idea is so interesting and it's, and it's the kind of environmental thing of like the garden is bad. Right. Like, well, humans just exist, damn it. And we have to, I guess we have to survive. So like, just live in your cave as quietly as possible. And like, don't step out the door and certainly don't like mow the grass or plant a hedge because you're going to disrupt the wilds and like the wilds should be in charge and you should be this like cowering servant of it. And if you don't, then you're like a dangerous, horrible person. You're a cancer. You're, you're destroying nature and you're whatever which is so weird, right? And, and I think Rand is very right in this, Christopher Alexander. And again, like the biblical tradition, what is, what is the first thing that God tells Adam and Eve in the garden, right? It's like, have dominion, name the animals. To name something is like an old magical, like spell casting, right? You name it, now you have some sort of control or dominion or ability to call upon it and then fill the earth and subdue it, right? And like this idea of, humans being the caretakers or being being like our life and thriving as again as a randian would say is moral um and she would say the highest moral good and, and a christian might say it, be it is because it is what we were created to do as reflectors of god and his infinite creative expansive you know potential of thriving and living um but same basic concept and i know randians and christians always get pissed at me when i when i say that these two things are so close to each other because <laughs> none of them agree with me. Um, well, some do, but, um, but this idea is like these spaces. And, and that's where like, when you go to a beautiful neighborhood um, or a beautiful city, many of them are ancient, not all it's Alexander's philosophy is not like old things are better and traditional architecture is better. Nothing like that. It's like anything that is in line with the natural patterns of humanity better. And a lot of the ancient things were, um, and that's why many of them are still here because people have just continued to find them beautiful. Um, and things that try to like, say, we don't care what people have like found intuitively over thousands of years of trial and error to be, uh, in line with human patterns. We're going to reason to it from scratch tabula rasa. And we're going to come up with a sort of a rationalistic approach that with no prior, we're not going to inherit anything from the people who have learned in the past. We're just going to come to it cold. Um, you pretty much never do a better job. <laughs> and I'm not even, I actually really like modern art architecture, a lot of it, and I'm not like a huge traditionalist or whatever. Um, but so when, you, when you're in a neighborhood or a village or something that's like this, what you'll find is these beautiful in-between spaces, the liminal spaces, the garden, the borderline between the wild and the structured and the, the order, the, the built and the chaos. And these gardens and porticos and little openings that open into, you know, interior, um, you know, interior spaces that have a, a half outside, half inside to them, a, um, like a courtyard type of a thing with maybe balconies hanging over again, where the outside is kind of, the inside is kind of coming out. It has a gateway, but it's also kind of, you can retreat into it. Um, there's a flow to it. So, 
all of these things, like as I read this stuff, it just had such a profound, it was such a big light bulb because it was like, you know, I had, I had reasoned to and struggled through all the intellectual, you know, arguments and gone through all this stuff, um, you know, the, the existence of objective truth and sort of objective um, components to reality. Um, and, you know, morally, politically, et cetera, um, and come to these conclusions on economics and stuff. But, but what Alexander helped me see, because I had always been, I had always been sort of like, yeah, when it comes to like fashion or beauty, that's just subjective. Who cares? That's just subjective. And the idea that like there was something objectively more beautiful or, you know, uh, better designed than something else, it just seemed stupid and arrogant because most people that talk that way are just being stupid and arrogant and just like trying to force their opinion on you. And I think, I think almost every specific instance where someone tries to tell you, you know, this song is objectively better than a Beatles song or whatever is usually kind of stupid. Um, but the principle that there is such a thing as a, a continuum of aliveness or alignment with the natural human patterns is real, right? So like, it's kind of like the laws of nature. Like there is something that happens every time you throw an object and it behaves in a certain way. And we keep changing our explanation for what exactly is happening. But every time our understanding changes, we don't say that the world now has different rules than it used to. We say that we understand them differently or better than we used to. And I think it's, I think it's similar in this regard. So this is where Rand is really funny in her like aesthetic stuff. Like, like, you know, I've heard these different funny stories of objectivists saying that like, you know, tap dancing is the most moral form of dance, you know, or just these like crazy sounding proclamations that like, if you listen to Mozart, you're a communist, it's anti-life, you know, but like Beethoven's okay or whatever. I don't remember who the specifics are, but like these very specific, that just seem like kind of rantings and ravings and like, okay, you're trying to, you're trying to take your philosophy and apply it so specifically. Um, it just seems crazy, but there's something right about it too, about saying, no, it's not all subjective. Even when it comes to aesthetics, it's not just preference. There actually are real patterns at work. And the idea that beauty would be an important thing worth, worth caring about, worth fighting for, that it actually matters, that's something that I've had to be convinced of over my life. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't naturally think that way. My sister is very, very much that, that way. She's very into interior design and thing. And she's like, it's just really important to put yourself in environments that are beautiful because it elevates you. It puts you in a better mood. You perform at your best. You feel that you're more in alignment. And like, and I think people are sensitive to this to varying degrees, just like their need for light uh, or vitamin D or whatever is different to varying degrees. But, but I think it's true. And it's something that I didn't always appreciate that like beauty is actually a virtue. Beauty is actually a virtue. It's often thought of as either neutral or a vice because it's just shallow surface level lust or whatever. But true beauty. You know, when I moved from shitty Lansing, Michigan, full of government buildings and union workers who hate themselves because they haven't, you know, had to work to earn money for so long and all this stuff to, well, and then to DC, which is God awful uh, in its own way. And then to South Carolina, to Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, it was unbelievable to me. I was, I was shocked by the quality of life increase that affected every facet of my life from health, from my ability to think and learn and have energy and be productive and just enjoy myself and my family that came 
from really small things like every time I drove from my house to the grocery store, the road I would drive over wound around big old trees in a certain way that felt very in line with their natural patterns. Um, and over tidal marshes that were full of water to the top during some times of day and low to the bottom at other times. And, and I got to learn these patterns sort of instinctively and seeing the sun over them and like the way that the water opened out and you could see some houses and docks, but they were kind of sheltered. And there's just, there's a beauty, it's a very beautiful area. I was struck like beauty really matters. And it's, and it's not just random taste. There are there are visual aesthetic experiences that are more alive than others. And that's sort of the Christopher Alexander idea. And again, with human patterns too. So, you know, as I mentioned in, in health or education, I mean, the experience of like childbirth, a typical hospital childbirth is so anti-life. It's so out of alignment with natural human patterns. The, again, the educational experience, just the built environment itself. Look at these places. And there's a reason they come about this way. Because the incentive structure of a domination, monopoly on force, government system, bureaucracy, et cetera, even if none of the people involved have a philosophy, there's no Ellsworth Tuies trying to make things ugly or trying to be you know, unconstrained in their vision and change man, they're just sort of unconsciously going along with the incentive. The incentive structures are so anti-life in government. They're so anti-life. I mean, they're literally death because literally everything government does is I will kill you if you don't do this. So there's always that backdrop. There's no competition. There's no, there's no wooing. There's no market process of trying to persuade you, hey, buy my product. It's a win-win, right? It's like, do this or I'll kill you, right? That's the, at, the, at the end of the day. So there's a reason everything that comes out of government has this horrible you know, anti-life uh, bent to it. But like the physical structures themselves, you're literally in dark white cinder block cells with fluorescent lights. Almost none of the classrooms have windows. The bathrooms have no doors on them. The idea of privacy or like protection as you're in a vulnerable spot going to the bathroom is stripped. Like all the humanity is stripped. But the same with much of the medical industry experience. It's like this cold, sterile, like impersonal, you know, um, oh, there's a problem, inject you with a needle, right? Think about, think about that. Like you want to be the most nurturing and relaxed and present as your child is brought into the world. And like, what is a human jabbing a piece of metal into you, a cold piece of metal jabbing it into your flesh is like, makes you like the most, it's like, ah, I'm not relaxed. I'm tense. I'm scared. Threats. Right. And like that whole idea that like medicine is this brutal process that runs counter to your natural tendencies of what you want to do. Okay. Oh, you don't want to push. We'll cut the baby out of you. Oh, we'll put a suction cup on the head and pull the baby out of you. Oh, we'll drug you. Right. And I'm not saying these are miracles that save lives sometimes, right? Like drastic interventions like that can be, can be life-saving, but think of them as like a speed bump in the road. Like if you have, and I have a friend, uh, Vince Graham, who's like a, like a neighborhood designer. He's very influenced by Christopher Alexander. He'll say like, if you have to put a speed bump in the road, you failed somewhere in your design of that neighborhood or that street. Cause the speed bump is like, people are driving too fast. It's dangerous, Right the patterns of drivers and the patterns of pedestrians are in conflict in this environment. And so like the most cold, naked, raw, stark, jarring way to deal with that is to put an ugly, aesthetically, totally unbecoming, um, you know, resource intensive, you got to come in and put in this lump of concrete and whatever. And it's jarring when you hit it as a car, you're like, and then what do people do? Because we're humans and you can't change that. 
We slow way the hell down right before and we go over it. And then we speed way up again. Oh, and then there's another speed bump. We slow way down and then we go and we speed way. Up. And then it, it just, it's like, then the cars flowing through the neighborhood, it doesn't make them more slow and pleasant. And oh, this is wonderful because the speed bump slowed them down. It's, it's like even more herky-jerky. It's like, right? Whereas if you design, let's say a road more narrowly where you can't go that fast because it has more turns and it's narrow and you just, you're just limited by the design of the road itself or where there's more lovely buildings along the way. So you naturally go slow to look at them or there are like buildings that jut out. It's not just a straight line. So you have to go around them. You're not in a grid pattern neighborhood. It naturally corrals these things or even street parking cars on the street parking, it narrows the, the lane and people drive slower around other cars naturally. And you can naturally bring these things into harmony. Um, so uh, I don't remember where I started with that one. I got all over the place. But um, so the, well, there, was one, there was something else I wanted to, to get on with this. This is what happens when you don't take any notes and you just sit down and you start chatting. Natural patterns. Oh, 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 okay. So here's a strange thing. There are some strange bedfellows with Christopher Alexander. There are a lot of people that I've met, the, the only people that I've met that have heard of him are usually also kind of Luddites. Like they're kind of anti-technology. They're kind of like a small is beautiful, like growth, economic growth and population growth and these things are kind of bad and dangerous. They tend to like some thinkers that I like, like Jane Jacobs and sort of, the, again, this like, approach to the built environment that's more in line with human patterns, but also like agriculture is bad, industry is bad, all applications of science are bad. Like if you, you know, whatever, um, modify your crops to make them grow better. It's always bad, right? Like, and I find that very strange and I find that very anti-life. And that's where sort of the environmental movement part comes in. There's like a self-hatred in there. And again, like the point is to constantly be searching that that boundary of like, how do you, how do you have dominion over the earth? How do you work in alignment with the patterns of human life and, and all forms of life in the natural environment, human environment in a way that is, you know, natural, um, in a way that's natural and life-giving and not like self-hating, right? So humans want to do more with less. They want more leisure. They're always going to try to design better tools to make the job easier and faster. Work with these patterns, not against them, right? Like, so the idea that, oh, everything was better before the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution or whatever, like, yes, Christopher Alexander's right. And everything old and primitive is better. That's just stupid to me. That's just absurd. Like all the things, the pictures of things that are beautiful, those were high technology at one point, right? Like, but I think a recognition um, that technology is not a god in and of itself. It's a servant, just like, just like any other you know, form of the, the natural world or whatever. Like humans are, it's best when we are using it to enhance our experience of life and freedom and truth and beauty, not when we are seeking it as an end in itself or even being subservient to it as a master. You know, well, we must do this because of technology, right? Like you can envision a, you, can, you know, you've been to places that are beautiful, natural environment, built environment, they flow together and everyone's very tech savvy and has their laptops and there's good high-speed Wi-Fi and whatever. And then you've been to other places that are just like hideous squares of concrete in a massive dead looking landscape full of cell phone towers, 
right? And you could say, well, technology and industrialization, see, that's what's anti life But it's not because you can find places that are very high tech that are also in line with those patterns. So I think it's very easy to get distracted by the specific instantiations of these things and either worship them or abhor them. Like to either worship, you know, a dugout hut. Look at how life-giving that is. We all should live in one. This is the great, this is my crusade. You know, a lot of, a lot of natural health people are like this. I discovered the one thing, it's the crusade. Or to, to worship them or, or to abhor them, to abhor something that you find like, oh, you know, the, you know, oh yes, uh, you know, whatever. Concrete is so ugly and it attracts heat and it's unnatural and like everything must be dirt. We must attack and tear down all, you know, I don't, I don't think any of those, those are actually anti-life too humans want to tinker and explore and innovate and develop and build and they're going to mess up they're going to make mistakes these things don't emerge out of whole cloth new ways of being in alignment with the patterns that are a part of you know life-giving patterns they have to be discovered they're almost never reasoned to they're discovered through trial and error and they're embodied and so new materials and new technologies become available the first uses of them are usually pretty hideous. Like have you ever seen 3D printing, like pretty much anything 3D printed, at least for the first decade, was like hideous, like inferior to other versions of making it. Or the first things manufactured with mass industrial, you know, mass manufacturing. But over time, we learn, here's this new tool. And if we're trying to come at it purely rationally and be like, I'm going to design the, something really perfect with this 3D printing model, it's going to have flaws that we don't know until we put it to use and we start to bump into it and realize that it's conflicting with our natural desires. I mean, good software UI UX is like this. Like you can think up all the use cases and how people are going to click this button and then this one over here. And I'm going to, I've experienced this with, with my own company. And then you put it out in the world and you realize you are not seeing some pattern that for, for whatever reason, everybody wants to put the mouse over here and do this. Why are they drawn to that? I don't know, but they are. So we got to adapt our software to that. Our first version of it was not harmonious with natural, you know, life-giving. It, it wasn't fully alive. It was kind of dead, right? And that's how it goes. And that doesn't mean technology is bad and it's killing us and new, you know, UI design is this horrible anti-life. We must stop it. It's like, no, you have to give it the time to be tested and to, and to come through the gauntlet and emerge as more and more life-giving. Like the older forms that you value and appreciate, again, they're not better because they're older. They're better because they have had more testing, more reps. They have People have learned and adapted them to the patterns that are implicit that we don't always know are explicit. And we can try to make them explicit like Alexander did. And I think that create is very, very beneficial. But it's mostly beneficial in explaining why we behave the ways that we do. It's not as beneficial as you think it would be when you say, great, now that I know this, I'm going to build something from scratch that's perfectly harmonious with these. It's very hard to do. You have to, you almost have to go back and rely on traditions that you can't fully explain why they work, but you just have observed enough of them working to know that you want to incorporate those in. And then you, you do some innovation on them. Again, you iterate. So that's a whole lot of, a lot of stuff that I said, I was hoping to just tease and whet your appetite with why I think Christopher Alexander is so important. I mean, the bottom line is a recognition. And, and this is very much, by the way, like kind of like Jordan Peterson and stuff talking on more of a mythical and moral level that like, there are archetypes, there are patterns, you know, even the concept of the garden, the border between chaos and order um, that are universal, that are timeless, that are inescapable. And 
understanding these things and not just saying it's all just preference, whatever, um, is really important. It's really important. And the more that I have in my life, whenever I find myself feeling in conflict, whether it's, whether it's where the couch is in this room right here, like, why does that, why do I never want to sit on that one couch? That's weird. Why would I own that couch and never sit on it? Well, what is it about its position that makes me, right? Whether it's just that kind of stuff, which actually makes my life more free. It makes me more alive by recognizing and trying to fix those things or things like, why do I always dread doing a call with this one person? There's something about it that is taking me out of alignment with my natural patterns. What is that? Can I, can I get under that? Can I understand that, right? I mean, it goes back to my, what I've been harping on for 15 years now. Don't do stuff you hate, right? Try to understand. That's where your lack of freedom comes from. That's where being enslaved to things comes from, that you're in conflict with how your natural programming, with the structure of the world, you're out of alignment with the divine, with truth, with whatever you want to call it. And when you see those things, take heed, even in the realm of aesthetics, beauty, diet, health, learning. You know, why do I always get so excited and I can't stop reading about things under certain conditions and other conditions, I hate them and they feel like a burden and I feel like it's a, it's a, a chore to learn about them. What is the difference? What's going on? Why is one out of alignment? What's the pattern? What's the fundamental pattern that's being violated here? That's what I think Christopher Alexander brings to the table. And by starting with something so tangible and visible that we've all experienced of buildings, physical buildings and structures and teasing out that there's a universal, a timeless pattern underneath this, and there are ways to build with it and build against it, just starts to open the floodgates for how this impacts, um, you know, things like the broader economy, um, governance structures, uh, all the things that I've mentioned already, health, education, et cetera. So Christopher Alexander, go check him out. I'm a huge fan, even though I am no scholar of him, and I probably got things uh, wrong in my descriptions here, but that is at least what he's meant to me. And I think he's a tremendously underrated thinker.